Noah, what is the key insight? Hexapodia is the key insight. Six feet. And what is that supposed to mean? That there is often some key nugget of fact that if you understand it correctly and place it in its proper context, will transform your view of the situation, allowing you to grok it completely. And in the context of Werner Vinge's amazing, mind-bending science fiction space opera novel, A Fire Upon the Deep. The importance of Hexapodia is... That those sapient bushes riding around on six-wheeled scooters have been... Genetically programmed to be a fifth column of spies and agents for the great evil. Today, however, here we seek different key insights than Hexapodia. Brad, what are our key insights today? Today we seek key insights about why we have somewhat different takes on growth, development, China, the solo model, and the future of South and Southeast Asia. Um, All right, I'm short, excited. Why we seem to see different worlds come 2070 um, than when we're actually close enough in how we think and in where we sit that our visualization of the future of the cosmic all should be pretty close together you know, and yet they're not. Well, that's really interesting. So let's let's start not with the future, but with the past. Mm -hmm. um, you recently wrote a post narrating your expectations of China's growth and how right. in the 80s and 90s, you dramatically underestimated China's growth. Right. And then eventually you, um, or in possibly even the 2000s, but then in the yes. 2010s, you overestimated China's Indeed. future growth potential. Yes. yes. And... and Yes. And so so you, in other words, you've gotten it wrong many times. And the reasons you laid out for this were mostly political economic. They had to do with various classes and group power groups in China and what they would and wouldn't tolerate, et cetera. Um, mm -hmm. and, and you found where you wanted to take resort in the solo model. Yeah. Yes. That economic growth is the increase in your capital intensity um, times some parameter, which is usually defined as alpha over one minus alpha. Um, plus the degree which you converge in total factor productivity um, to the world's norm. And mm -hmm. those two things govern it. And given that China had an absolute huge amounts of tons of investment, the capital deepening term was relatively large throughout. And also, in part because you were bringing in so much capital and making so much capital and wisely embodying technology in it, the total factor productivity convergence team was not sliced bread either, you know, up until 2010, you know, after which China starts to disappoint, I think, um, relative to simply saying it has a normal marginal product of capital and look at its investment share, a country that spends 50% or 40% of its national income on investment is going to pile up a lot of capital and that's going to be pretty useful and pretty productive somewhere right now the so it's important to point out that the solo model has this hidden assumption uh which is relaxed in the similar ramsey model mm -hmm. which is that basically there's a constant rate of savings and investment right um and that uh essentially you just keep saving keep saving keep investing keep investing at this base at this um you know pretty constant rate the ramsey mm -hmm. model says okay if everybody was you know rational then yeah. um your so savings rate would slow down at some yes. point and blah, blah blah and basically i i feel like the solo model is the, is really great for uh developing economies that do large essentially use financial oppression and other political economic stuff to force savings rates to be very high for a long period of time which and china is still doing which, right? they are which china still doing. is still doing it turns out that they are ideologically opposed to having a welfare state 
uh, at least at the local and provincial government level, um, that gets benefits to people because they think the common people need to be encouraged to work rather than to become moochers. Um, right. And they also seem to have an ideological opposition to letting consumers decide on what to spend a lot of their income on. Because the whole point of the party is that it's supposed to guide society, and an important part of guiding society is to figure out what spending priorities are. You know, and making bite dance rich is not apparently one of them. Right. And so um the solo model basically, given that you have a constant rate of savings and investment, which I thought was a good assumption here. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, it basically... certainly is. China isn't letting it do anything else. You know, just right. as the Soviet Union wasn't letting it do anything else in the 70s and 80s. They kept on investing furiously. That's true. Mm -hmm. So so I think that um, the solo model basically says three things, right? Mm -hmm. Number one, um, if you uh, keep investing and investing, diminishing marginal returns to capital will reduce your marginal product of investment. Mm -hmm. uh, number two, depreciation of capital yes. will eventually overwhelm your mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. maybe that's only yeah. one thing maybe that's only one thing but basically okay. with diminishing marginal product of capital over time and the uh in and depreciation that's basically just a percentage right. of your capital stock right uh, eventually depreciation will overwhelm your invest um, your investment you won't be able to invest enough to keep your capital stock growing because it's all just depreciating and you have to spend all this money yes. and and effort uh, just maintaining your massive capital stock. Although I did once ask Bob Solo why was it the case that he the baseline case in his model was one in which there was a constant growth savings rate rather than a constant say net savings rate out of net income why was it a constant growth rate of saving out of gross income? Why didn't people uh -oh. realize this depreciation was going on and adjust to it? And if my memory is correct, he shrugged his shoulders and said, "Referees." It's all, but I mean, it's it's impossible. Like uh, savings mm -hmm. will like if depreciation yeah. keeps rising and rising, and you keep saving more and more to compensate for that. Eventually, you will die. Well, yeah, and also that well, I agree with the referees. Your, yeah, eventually, your rate of return on your savings is going to go to zero. It's going right. to go into negative. That, yep. Um, that it will go negative. That you will hit, you will never get beyond the golden rule point of savings accumulation because you won't be that stupid. You will um, also die. Well, eventually, yes. So yes if you are We're not really stupid, talking about a ransom model here. I think the, the gross savings, mm -hmm. uh, constant gross savings was a decent assumption for this sort of economy. And, um, you know, okay. capital deepening will go on. And if you look at China's capital deepening mm -hmm. path, Mm -hmm. It's not a heck of a lot different from uh, from other economies. You know, if you just look at. It's an East Asian economy. It's an East it's Asian economy. Deepening. It's an East e all East Asian economies. And maybe China's interior is different, but all East Asian economies have about the same amount of capital deepening. It looks as if they all get on that they get on the Ferris wheel at different points or the roller yeah. coaster at different points and then roll forward. Now, but the, the second thing the back in, 19, says, back in 1965, right? Paul Samuelson was still doing U.S. Soviet Union comparisons and saying solo model. 
and saying the Soviet Union, because of its inefficiencies of its command economy, is only one half as rich in total as one half as good at total factor productivity at the United States. But the capital deepening is proceeding enormously, and eventually it will overwhelm you know, the United States in terms of real output per capita, although there are still very big measurement issues. It's not just that they produce with low product they produce. Um, with low efficiency, it's also that they utilize with low efficiency. And so the value of goods, the consumer surplus is not nearly as high you know, in the Soviet Union, even if their GDP per capita at factor cost is greater. And that fell apart in the 70s and 80s, that the incremental capital output ratio in the Soviet Union went essentially to infinity, You know that the marginal product of new investment, which had been High in the 1930s and reasonable in the 1950s and 1960s suddenly became effectively zip in the 1970s and 1980s, so that in the 1980s, the Soviet Union simply could not figure out a way to devote money to investment in order to boost its wheat crop. Right. And, and something, um... something like that may have happened in China in the past 10 years, you know. Um, that the rate of return on the furious amount of investment may have fallen. Although it's very hard to tell because we don't trust the statistics and the anecdotes of, you know, um, wasted investment and empty cities. Um, well, it seems that a city that was empty five years ago now actually has some people living in it and doing stuff. Right. I'm not. Yeah, I'm. I'm not sure that the uh, the the malinvestment thesis really holds mm -hmm. up here. Mm -hmm. um, I think that that's that's one place where the critics have overstated their you case. Have, although you are put on in line of being one of the people one of the malinvestment thesis people, as saying there was overinvestment in housing. Um, no, no, people, no. I, I think that expectations of yes. in, of continued investment in housing were inflated. Yes. Yes. I don't think that yes. I think that there was a bit of overinvestment housing like a little bit, but it wasn't, you know, there was some overinvestment housing in America in the 2000s, but it wasn't that huge. But people still had real got real houses out. of it. Yeah, people still got real houses. Yes, and and, someone's... You know, eventually, there were some exurbs in the like in the in the Inland Empire that got torn up. But like mostly it was mm -hmm. fine. Like it was fine. People got houses. No, what, what, what? And even if it's China, an exurb in the early in the empire, there is a price at which someone will live in it and be happy, living in a right. five bedroom house, even if right. there's even if the community swimming pool was never built, right? Right. And so I think what happened in China was not primarily a case of malinvestment. Although I mean, I think there was a bit, you know, those those sort of like mid tier uh, high speed train lines are not very useful. But but I think well, that's a red herring mostly. It's a, it's mostly know. a red herring. Yeah, Michael Pettis I mean, is overemphasizes this a lot. Now, to what degree is Michael Pettis a? They're not building useful things, and to what degree is Michael Pettis their structure of financing is completely messed up, and they won't be able to rebalance the economy because recognizing reality will cause catastrophic wealth losses to people who cannot politically who have the political power to keep the economy from recognizing them. Pettis isn't a political economy guy. He's a he's a sectoral balances guy. Yeah, so he's more yeah, about yeah. investment versus consumption. Yeah. His, you know, his um his main thesis that, you know, China directed too much um mm -hmm. investment into stuff that was low marginal productivity, I think is right. But right. to say that, you know, to go on top of that and say that like 
some of this is just uh, is just wasteful stuff that will never be used is a little too going a little too far. But so I think we have to separate this this sort of the sort of claim of malinvestment of of building right. stuff that's useless or that has negative mm -hmm. marginal product from the idea yes. of building stuff that has marginal product low enough where the opportunity cost was was uh you know was higher. So uh, you could have done something smarter. You could have done something smarter, exactly. And, but, then um, having, and just, but then having a decade of relatively high unemployment and businesses that aren't too interested in experimenting with business models or in boosting labor productivity because workers are so cheap. Right. You know, that's also not an optimal use of resources. And if you look at Chinese total factor productivity, mm -hmm. it really um, it crashes out after the Great Recession. Yes, it, it crashes to depending. I mean, TFP is hard to estimate. Some people mm -hmm. say it kept growing at one percent, mm -hmm. lowered from like three or four percent. Some people right. say that it went all the way to zero or negative. Mm -hmm. I don't quite believe the uh, the pen world tables. I think there's something wrong with their methodology, and someone right. should call them and talk to them about that. But um, I do think there was a massive productivity growth crash in China after the Great Recession. And when you look at incremental capital output ratios. Mm -hmm. You see that most of the growth in incremental uh, capital output ratios, meaning most of the growth in the amount of investment that it took to produce a certain amount of GDP growth, happened because of the expansion of the property and infrastructure sectors, it's mostly sector. property, and to some right. degree infrastructure. It happened because mm -hmm. more property infrastructure got built. You do see some productivity deterioration among like uh, non among other sectors, right? Um, but it's it's possible that even that is caused by their links to the real estate industry, or it's possible mm -hmm. that, you know, they, they, there was a little bit of state encroachment and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But, but I think that's a sideshow. The idea of yes. this, in, the idea of this increasing state control, increasing zombie bailouts, blah, 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 will be a big problem going forward, especially right. with how she has transformed the economy. Now, I think mm -hmm. that would be a big problem going forward, but I think that heretofore the big productivity problems were just, too much <clears throat> infrastructure mm -hmm. just too much you know like um uh it was an overexpansion of that sector for the purpose of macroeconomic stabilization mm -hmm. and local government finance and building up wealth and everything else they used real estate to do which was everything yeah so what we want to say is that china solved its macroeconomic stabilization problems over the past 15 years since the start of the great recession by pursuing a strongly suboptimal long-run growth investment direction you know, right and, and let us let us give hayek solve... his due by the way let us give hayek and von mises their due right here right which we don't often do right we don't um, often, do we don't okay, often say we these should... guys were right about something so i should i start looking for a sound clip a pro hayek a, a hayek cheer sound clip that we can <laughs> insert into the podcast occasionally whenever we get to a point where hayek! we want to compliment hayek <laughs> We should, um, right. but it, it'll be very rarely used, so no one will know what it is or get the joke, but we should still do it. Um, mm -hmm. So the thing is that Hayek and von Mises thought that stimulus, fiscal yes. stimulus would um, would come at the expense of productivity because it would <laughs> lead to misallocation of resources among sectors in the real economy. Sectoral misallocation would be the result of stimulus. and Not just fiscal stimulus, but, but also you monetary. know, unwarranted private sector stimulus at all. There is this account of the seminar in which Richard Kahn, you know, who came up with the Keynesian multiplier and why it isn't called the Kahnian multiplier, I do not know. Um, 
when Richard Kahn raised his hand and saying, are you saying that if I felt guilty about all the unemployed people around me right now and went out and bought an extra overcoat, that would actually increase unemployment? Yes. And, and he said, Hayek yes, it said would. yes, it would. Um, because while you're building, you're buying an extra overcoat, there would be someone who would get extra employment making it. The fact that you had bought an overcoat would induce overinvestment in the overcoat making industry. And we would produce extra capital. Um, and then, lo and behold, because you have the overcoat now, you wouldn't buy it in the normal cycle later on. And we'd have built these useless machines, you know, which then wouldn't be used for anything because there would be this false signal that there was a demand for overcoats, which actually did not exist because you hadn't responded to economic reality, but I just felt guilty. And so in the end, the round trip would have been negative. Right. right. That same amount of overcoats purchased, but a whole bunch of wasted capital produced and a bunch of people unemployed while you waited for the capital to depreciate and rust out. Right. It's um, not yeah. the first it's not the first order thing to worry about, um, but it is something to worry about on a large enough scale. Right. But it looks like all these years we thought China, you know, or when I say all these years, I mean, for a decade, the, the 2010s were the decade of China overestimation. Right. The the yes, but um for the twenty tens, we thought China had magically solved the macroeconomic stabilization problem, basically being able to um not just prevent recessions from happening at all, but do it without running up government debt and you know making yes. all the fiscal hawks afraid. We thought they mm -hmm. had found a new way of doing macroeconomic stabilization, but it turned out that the long term cost of that was low productivity that it turns out that Hayek and von Mises actually could be right in some state of the world and that well, China managed to find that state of the world in which they essentially met, they used massive, massive misallocation right. to sectoral misallocation, uh, which, which crucially turned out to be sticky. So, so Hayek and yes. von Mises wouldn't have been right had- If the they Chinese can climb economy... themselves down from the current macro position. Right. If they but could switch people from if they could switch people over from construction to export industry or switch people now over from construction to service sector provision or switch people from construction over to, I don't know what, genuinely building up the interior. And all of the massive white collar occupations of pushing real right. estate related paper around desks. Right. Right. Virtual okay. desks. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. But then. But. Yeah, so they, they managed to do this. And then the, the crucial thing was that it was sticky. They kept, so real it was a one-way ratchet. Real estate is kept increasing as a percentage of China's economy, you know, uh, steadily throughout, you know, from 2008 to, to 2020 or whatever, reaching ultimately, you know, levels that put even our own real estate bubble to shame. You know, our well, real estate our is a real perspective. estate bubble was not that large. It was a little dinky thing. Our bubble? Our bubble was a dinky thing. Yeah. I mean, compared to China's, yes. Yes. But, yes. I mean, sure. Spain's was the biggest, but um, yes. Smaller countries had bigger bubbles, but, but ours, we are a big country. And, um, mm. but Japan's land bubble, this epic yes. land bubble, uh, was about the same size in terms of percentage of GDP devoted to real estate as ours mm -hmm. was in the 2000s. It was similar in size. And, uh, China's was much, much larger than either of those. They just pumped, you know, real estate went to 29% of GDP. <laughs> okay. 
And um, mm-hmm. not only was it 29% of GDP overall, it was also almost all of low, it was most of local, local government re- revenue. Yes. Because they don't collect property tax. Right. right. Which is insane. Okay. And also it was, it was the vast amount of wealth for everyone in the country, even the rich people. Mm-hmm. So real estate was everything to them. And it be- just, and the, the 2010s. Now it would still be possible to be a China bull going forward. Yes. Right. You say there are large externalities toward investment in artificial intelligence and other whatever generation we're on, fifth generation, sixth generation information technologies that make smart matter of various kinds. And that past histories of excellence in industrial design and engineering, we're looking at your expertise in gasoline and diesel engines, Germany, are not going to be of much use. In the future, when the making of every single material is controlled by nanotech, by, um, I don't know what you call them, shall we say nanocomputers and AI, and then when the use of every single thing made out of material is controlled by nanos, machines, and AI. Um, and that China has an enormous scale of potential operations and an enormous an engineering culture that is enormously effective at figuring out process technologies and so the process technologies of producing whatever the new industries enabled by general purpose information technologies will be um, it'll be able to produce them more efficiently in part because they take pains and in part because of the enormous scale of their market And that come 15 years from now, we will look at China the way that Britain in 1910 looked at the United States and said, wait a minute, we were supposed to be the workshop of the world. You know, who is this Andrew Carnegie? Who is this Henry Ford? Why is it that it now looks like the United States can produce battleships at twice the rate that we have, that we can, with a lower tax burden? Right. And indeed, if World War One against Germany had not come along, things might well have gotten fraught. I don't think this bull case is yeah. is sufficient. I don't no. I don't think that, that developing these new technologies would be sufficient to to really bust China to a higher, you know, up to a higher um bust mm-hmm. them out of the middle income trap, if you will, if that's a although we know there's no real middle income trap, but you know. Well, uh, there's something that looks like a middle-income trap. Something that ends up looking like it. Um, the point is that China is not significantly technologically behind any advanced nation. In well, overall, overall they are not. They are not semiconductors. In a few, we can point to a few industries: semiconductors, wide-body aircraft, robotics, where they are somewhat behind. But China right. is far, in terms of semiconductor-related industries, China is far ahead of France. Yes. far ahead of you know the uk germany um mm-hmm. and arguably ahead of japan in many ways although you know you can't really say ahead because japan does different things and they occupy different niches in the supply chain right. but you don't need to be a semiconductor superpower or a wide body aircraft maker which for example japan isn't right. you know and and most country most advanced countries are not you don't need and as long that. as china is a maglev train maker and a semiconductor yeah. maker at reasonable scale yeah and so on and so forth they can actually do absolutely fine absolutely fine you know, and they're not Shenzhen, 
they'll get their software industry, even if Xi Jinping doesn't want them to have one. And Shenzhen will still be world-class in microelectronic analog and other devices. Absolutely. Um, yes. The, 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 you know, the ways in which they're technologically behind us have turned mm -hmm. from just a general technological lag 15 years ago to essentially just tiny little spot lags in, in specific industries. And so I just don't think they're going to be significantly... Um, why is their total factor productivity still so much lower than ours? Because I think that total factor productivity, while in the long run, is, you know, long run frontier total factor productivity of the richest nations is determined largely by technology and what technologies exist. I think that TFP differences in the cross section are determined largely by effectiveness of institutions and markets and things like that, mm -hmm. um, which is to say, um, it's not the fact that China's technologically shitty that's making them so that that could make a tiny difference in in living standards, but they have a huge difference in living standards. They are, you know, by the most optimistic estimate, let still less than a third as rich as a 28, 29% as rich as us. And it, that that's by the most optimistic estimate. And so. And um, this is that the, so this is the case that for a long time in India, the 50 million richest people in India have been at least as rich as the 50 million richest people in Britain. Sure. But there are 1.3 billion people in India now, sure. and still only 50 million or so in England. Right. Right. Two, yeah. China is not at nearly as much of an export-oriented economy as it used to be. It as used it used to, to be. It's now a real estate-oriented economy. Well, it is. It's more yes. more accurately, it is a domestic-focused economy with a heavy emphasis on investment. Right. Um, um, because the and... infrastructure is in there, too. And, you know, then they, they periodically have these explosions of investment in things like electric cars and trains. Right. But it's um, it's a it's an investment heavy domestic focused economy. Imagine and if so could it become could it become, say, the electric vehicle exporter to the world in the way that the US was the internal combustion vehicle exporter to the world in the nineteen fifties? It has already well, become that. But it's not enough <laughs> because the yeah. United States had uh this incredibly thriving internal economy. The United States was never an export oriented economy. We right, never have been right. ever. Um mm -hmm. Even in the fifties, we were not. Uh, we even in the eighteen in the eighteen hundreds, we were not. We've always been primarily an economy that bought <laughs> and sold stuff to ourselves because we were really, really big, you know. Okay. And China's really, really big. Most of China's living standards will be determined by the efficiency with which Chinese people buy and sell stuff to each other. Okay, and so here we've moved on from. We've China. talked about real estate boom bust. We've talked about structural imbalances. Um, we've concluded that maybe real estate boom bust is a threat to the system, but it's it's a threat to the system because of the financial control order. And we've discovered that structural imbalances are the same. So what we're left with is we're left with um, Adam Posen's authoritarian expropriation risk is coming to roost. You I know, think so. And that's going to be an absolutely devastating effect. Um, and we also have... What was it? Arpit Arpit Gupta. Gupta saying that there were soft budget constraints that Janos Kornai would have interesting things to say because as China tries to unwind its structural problems, you know, um, it's going to find itself again in a situation in which it does not dare close anything down because of political consequences. And so as a result, outside of the favored sectors, 
you know, in which you are pushing for efficiency and scale above all, you know, it's going to be an economy in which you keep things running, but mostly you cement your relationships with the local party bosses and you hope your party boss faction doesn't fall right. in some internal faction fight. So then, right. So, so Posen is talking about people being scared of the government coming in and busting up your business, which I think is real, right. especially after yes. that tech crackdown, even though now they're like, oh, actually just kidding. We're stopping that. Mm-hmm. Nobody mm-hmm. thinks that nobody has confidence anymore that it won't happen again, you know? And people nobody know knows. Again in a week. And it used to be that people knew they knew how to feel safe, right? Because right. you employed nephews of local party bosses, you were extremely friendly, you incorporated people into your social network, and precisely because the priority was economic growth. If anyone wanted to move against you, having people in the party as part of your faction saying, no, wait a minute, this is a very useful person. He is a good communist. You know, we need to promote this business, not close it down. Then you could work that system just like you could work the, you know, landlord's child becomes a scholar, um, takes the examination, becomes a bureaucrat, um, goes out and governs a province and takes bribes so they can buy more land. And the salt system continues. You know, as long as you had an appropriate number of landlords, scholars, successful exam takers, bureaucrats, and governors in your extended family. You know, you were effectively golden. You were effectively insulated from anything terrible, terrible happening to your family and your lineage. You know, maybe one of your relatives would be executed for corruption, but everyone would assure him that everyone else in the family was okay and so forth. That you could figure out how to do that before the coming of Xi Jinping. And now you really can't. Right. Um, so I think, and, and so that's, 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 uh, that's. Now, who was the Republican saying that if Donald Trump wins re-election, that Disney and Apple's property, intellectual property rights are toast yesterday? I should, you know, I haven't paid that much attention to what they said. <laughs> well, then you're probably a smart and wise and happy man. One would hope, um, mm-hmm. so, but at least I don't pay attention to Republicans. Uh, mm-hmm. No, anyway, so um, although I did write a piece about Vivek Ravaswamy and his ideas the other day, if you want to read that, but what um, ideas? But okay, so I mean, basically, he's Chat GPT four. Um, he is Chat GPT four. Installed. That, that's in an insult form. to the good people at OpenAI. All right. No, we it isn't. OpenAI fans, all all one point six of them. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I asked OpenAI. Um, I asked OpenAI to tell me um, what the phrase hexapodia is the key insight means. Uh Uh-huh. What did they say? Um, It did not cover itself in much glory, I must say. Um, You know, that is it. You know, let me pull this up. Um... It said Hexapodia is a term coined by Brad DeLong and Noah Smith for their podcast series. It did say the podcast <laughs> explores various topics in economics, finance, political economy, and history. Amazing. But it also said Brad DeLong believes Hexapodia is the key insight in the sense that it represents the importance of being open-minded and curious about different perspectives and paradigms. 
um, that I use hex, the phrase hexapodia is the key insight to argue that the Biden administration's economic policies are not inflationary. And that I say hexapodia is the key <laughs> insight to explain why China's industrial policy is successfully successful and unique. Um, it also says we use it as a catchy title for our podcast series. Um, basically, it sounds like Vivek Ramaswamy. Right? Um, plausible <laughs> sentences that make absolutely no substantive sense because there is no model of truth of the world out there behind them. I think, can you write one blog post that's just that response? Okay. <laughs> can I you will. can you put that response in, in the blog post and use it to say something about the nature of AI? Maybe, maybe, maybe. Um, that, that's amazing. It just maybe. Like, that's some of the best bullshitting I've ever heard. It is incredibly good bullshitting. Yes, it is. It like, is. Um, the, the, the way the, the, the Turing test, by the way, has changed. Yes. The Turing test is now simply a question to which the correct answer is, I don't know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so if you, ask, if, you ask LLM, if you ask something, a question to which the correct answer is, obviously, I don't know. And and they just go on some big bullshit rant, you know. There's a good chance that it's a uh, an LLM or just a college student who's a you know who's afraid mm. of not being able to give an answer to the professor. Okay. Uh, okay. Anyway, so let back to back to China. I think the reason that uh, my solo model predictions got it basically right, uh, although but um, although I predicted they would top out at about fifty uh, percent of U.S. per capita GDP right. instead of 30% 30 or 35. Right. Um, but, but so I got it wrong too, but you know, I think my, my general solo model was right because um, capital mm -hmm. deepening in the early stages overwhelms political economy while in the long yes. run, political economy, economy is going to overwhelm a, capital. Deepening. Right. That's a big part of that, that a in the solo model, the secret sauce, the magic mystery fudge factor you know, mm -hmm. that, that determines the final resting state of the solo model that determines how rich you ultimately get. It's called a. And so, you know, if you ask why, why are, are some countries richer than other countries? He's like, hey, and uh, and and basically in that a term, political yes. economy lives there. And so yes. I think that that I was right, that that they would be able to sustain a high level of investment and that capital deepening would quantitatively overwhelm a uh for mm -hmm. at least a couple of decades and um but i think that y your political economy based predictions will be more effective going forward mm -hmm. now that capital deepening has kind of run out basically you realize we sound like bullwinkle moose right saying that this time we're going to successfully pull a rabbit out of a hat <laughs> did he ever do it no he never did hmm I but, think it may be once, but it was a very ferocious and unhappy rabbit because it did not want to be pulled out of the hat. Usually it was a lion or something else. Um, but you have to admit that show really did nail, you know, the, the extremely obvious Russian spies pretty effectively. It did. It did. It did. Boris um, and Natasha. Uh, okay, but excellent. here's the question. Where do we go yes. from here? So so I'm. I think my next post is going to be about the future of globalization and how Asia... Uh, what what the economist called Alt Asia, which consists of yes. South Asia and Southeast Asia. Um, well, for some of those parts of Southeast Asia that are poorer than coastal China now, they can take on, they can friendshore. They will benefit enormously from friendshore. 
right. that even Vietnam, though the economist denies it, they are already benefiting significantly from the idea of friend choice. And they can take over the export role, the export manufacturing role that China used to have in the global economy to the extent that that's still a thing. And I think it will substantially be a thing. And because those countries have a lower population than China, they are going to do absolutely fine. Um, I think the interesting question is the future of India. Mm. And there I do not know enough to even have a view. Um, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic about India, mm -hmm. uh, yep. because India has one advantage that of all these other countries, only Indonesia really has, and even them not as much, which is a titanically large domestic market. Yes. Just absolutely huge. India mm -hmm. and India does not, you know, they protect their domestic market a little bit, right. but overall india is the in, india is the real opportunity that people falsely thought that china represented because um as in the the richer india gets the more we will be able to sell stuff to india um so you know many of the risks that were there with china are not there with india uh, in unless you're muslim unless you're what unless you're a muslim no, I mean, I think if you're UAE, <laughs> India is not oh, going to turn down your you're investments. UAE, you're going to be unless fine, you're like yes. a, a poor local Muslim living in a slum right, in, unless in, you're in a Indian poor city. Local Muslim. All right. Then you're fucked. But okay, um, then rich foreign Muslims will do fine. Um, yes, dealing with India. Yes, um, that they're safer probably dealing with India than they're safer dealing with Saudi Arabia. To, right, perhaps. and. I, you know, I mean, there's this whole other, like, there's this whole geopolitical aspect to the U.S.-India partnership. But I think, um, ultimately, India, investing in India, you know, we invested so much in China at times when the the Chinese Communist Party was doing so many bad things. You know, even in the relatively liberal Deng, Zhang, and Hu era, mm -hmm. they were, you know, harvesting kidneys and, and doing mass detentions of people right. and, you know, like mass forced abortions and surveillance. And, they, you know, it wasn't as mean as Xi Jinping. Like it wasn't totalitarian, mm -hmm. but it was heavily authoritarian and discriminatory. Mm -hmm. um, right. And and we just poured our money into it and didn't really think too hard about it. And we thought, oh, they'll get better if we put our money into it. Right. With, I would say that there's no sense in which Modi's India seems yeah. worse than than that than than right 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 than than the ccp was even under mm. Zhang Zhang and who um mm -hmm. they haven't done anything like tiananmen square yet um, right you know if they do then then we'll see what they then do. we can reevaluate pogrom in gujarat yes um when modi was the the governor there but but um but pogroms did not keep the french from investing and in allying with russia back before world war one correct and, and indeed, so i if think not that... for the communists the french would have been very happy with their investments right. in russian railroads in terms of the just the the facts about where investments going i think that india has most of the strengths it needs to draw investment um mm -hmm. it does not yet have women working enough outside the home and its education primary education system is not yet good enough but i think those are two fixable things and growth mm -hmm. tends to take on a momentum all its own what right. India doesn't have is the the financial system to be able to drive massively high investment rates. So India, the solo model may not describe India quite as well as it, you know, did the East Asia. Or the model. solo model with a high, right, um, 
the solar model yeah. thinking with a high investment share, the solar model will still right. fit five, right? Uh, in fact, it's hard for the solar model not to fit fine since arithmetically capital deepening plus total factor productivity is it. There's nothing well, else. Yes, but you might get something. Defining one of your key model. variables as a residual is right. Know, although at least we hunt for explanations for why total factor productivity is doing what is doing, as opposed to the Prescottians who kind of worship it. <laughs> it just comes from the sky. They it do a TFB dance. Sky. Yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, no, it, it you don't. You actually can't do it. It's very much like the god of Thomas Aquinas, right? It's the unmoved mover. And you cannot acquire, you cannot inquire into why it does what it does. Uh, but it simply does, and it then drives and determines everything. Mm. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, you know, we're fans of Werner Vinge. Werner yep. Vinge also wrote Marooned in Real Time. Yes. Which is the most... Uh, Prescottian vision of technology in any sci-fi book I've ever heard, because mm -hmm. when you have the evil university administrators, you, you know, stealing the technology from their professors and using it to yes. put most of the world in stasis field so they can rule the world and prevent all technological progress. Yes. Um, people in the wilderness still discover new information technology at the same rate. Yes. And so it was definitely the RBC model, uh, you know, in a, um, okay. yes, <laughs> In yes. a book, and I'm sorry, that was the Peace War. That was Maroon that and was the Peace sequel, War. which is all about like being lonely and old. But because you've been transported very far in the future in your stasis bubble. Yes. But then, yes. but the Peace War was the RBC model in a book. And so okay. that should be one of our key I insights. I had not thought. I had not thought of that before. <laughs> right. Oh, definitely... oh, oh, I didn't assume. Okay. It was definitely um, the rage of like a frustrated professor, right? right. Administrators. Okay. Yes, it does sound like something that an academic who has gotten on the wrong side of a bureaucrat um, would write. So, do we you disagree know. about Southeast and South Asia? Actually, I do not think we disagree about Southeast and South Asia. Although you sound a bit more confident about India than I do, um, but we both seem to be equally confident that. China's political economy drifting away from, you know, sanity, um, technocratic sanity does open up an opportunity for Southeast Asia, which it should be able to, the French-roaring opportunity, which it should be able to take very adv good advantage of. And it's a good place to buy. Hell yeah. Um, I think we are still profoundly uncertain about, you know, um, about China, right? What we really are doing is that we are betting, yeah, you know, on the fact that wherever in the past, right, that wherever in the past, um, we've gotten crossways, you know, against or government has gotten crossways against its bourgeoisie, against its entrepreneurial class. Um, it's gotten itself into real, real trouble. You know, um, whether it's the Habsburgs, you know, of course, the people who mostly got in trouble with their bourgeoisies, the people who mostly promoted the noble reaction and militarization of society and regulation of business and industry were, of course, the Habsburgs. And, you know, wherever the Habsburgs show up, you know, all of a sudden, Belgium is four generations behind, you know, um, Holland. 
all of a sudden northern Italy is no longer the most prosperous region in Europe, but is instead, you know, a backwater where people can barely afford to eat polenta. Already Spain goes from the place that had the most progressive and productive textile industry in the world into, you know, Don Quixote's country of poor squires who dream of military glory with no way to attain it. Um, you know, that um, wherever the relative autonomy of the state was exercised in favor of the aristocracy, consequences for development were destructive, um, very destructive. And I think it's very natural for us to want to read um, party for aristocracy in this context, because they really are playing the same kind of social role. But, you know, that's a generalization from European history, which may not apply. Um, I feel like the the party is more like a mafia than it is well, like an what aristocracy. What do you think an aristocracy was? There are, well, to a certain extent, but I, I think they function quite differently because in the mafia, the mafia is based on pseudo kinship, while the aristocracy is based on actual kinship. So the with the aristocracy, they try it tries to be a mafia, but instead <laughs> it's constantly based on blood and marriage, whereas the party can simply vet you or throw you in prison or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You kind of well. I think aristocracy uh, yes, is likely to yes, be conservative yes and, and no. pro-stasis yes. because of the lineage yes. and et cetera effect. Yes, and parties, no, you know, and I... mafias are more likely to make very big dramatic mistakes. They're more likely to make, well, aristocracies can make dramatic, dramatic mistakes too. But yes, party is more centralized and an aristocracy has more of a sense of kinship and inheritance and so forth. And, you know, it's rather odd that even... You know, that in France in the 1700s, the members of the aristocracy who were most exercised about and most virulent at lobbying for the ancient and inherited privileges of the aristocracy, you know, were people whose aristocratic titles were only one or two or three generations old. You know, people whose great grandparents had been bureaucrats and given an aristocratic title as a reward for their long service to the king, that those were at the core of the kind of noble reaction against French attempts to rationalize their public finance and tax the aristocracy that in fact led to the fiscal crisis that started the French Revolution. Um, mm, right. But I don't think there's an audience for a podcast on Franklin Ford's great book, Robe and Sword, you know, the French aristocratic reaction in the 1700s. I think we can do a podcast based on whatever we like. Okay, I'm not sure I could get you to read Franklin Ford's book *Robe and Sword*, um, the aristocratic reaction. You probably to the could not. Economy. Actually, you probably right. could not. All, All right. right, I think that's a good place to wrap up. Okay, so Noah, what is the key insight? I think the the key insight is that you can get pretty far by just massively forcing your society to build lots and lots and lots of Oops. capital. Duh. But if you have, if you have an outside country you can look at and say, give me one of those. Give or me give one me of those. five of those. Yes. But, but relative, you know, you can get fairly far, but then, um, you know, eventually the, the hard stuff takes over, not just technology either. We, we always think of technology 
uh, you know, yeah. but really it's it's a lot more, you know, institutions, property rights, uh, you know, government. People actually doing what they say they would do. People feeling like they should actually fulfill their con their contracts. Right. And so forth, you know, and that will take over. Political that... economy will win in the in the end against, you know, even the most concerted uh, building. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And that... um yeah. Something like Elon Musk pulling the trigger one day earlier on the Twitter merger and then saying he had fired the CEO for cause during the one minute that he had been owner and thus that the CEO was not entitled to what the CEO had negotiated as the kind of exit package as part of the merger deal um, is an is an anomaly um, in the United States and is an anomalous way of behavior that goes to the courts and goes to the courts with, I think, a very low chance of Elon not being forced to pay the counter his counterparty's attorney's fees. You know, but that kind of, you know, China occasionally executes, you know, a bureaucrat and industrialist for this kind of thing. But it's not that well controlled. All right. Um, so I think on my side, the key insight um is that you know um quantity of investment has a quality of its own only so far and while we may have be indeed surprised and amazed at china's technological excellence in electric vehicles in battery and solar technology in high speed rail and so forth you know, those are relatively small slices of what a truly prosperous economy needs. And for everything else, a fear that soft budget constraints and the long-run economic defects of authoritarian systems um, are things that China will not be able to evade. And I don't know whether that's a middle-income trap, but it functions like one. Yeah, pretty much. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, we have one more key insight for you, which, which is, is Hexapodia. Hexapodia. Hexapodia this has been Noah Smith insight. and Brad Long's Hexapodia podcast. Thank you very much for listening and goodbye. And goodbye.